James chapter 5, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 13 through verse 16. now to the reading of God's holy word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Let's seek this, the Lord's blessing on his holy word. Gracious God in heaven, we, we do praise you and thank you for your word. We know that your word is truth, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage this morning, we pray for your spirit to truly bless your word to our hearts, giving us understanding and insight. And that as your word goes forth in the power of the spirit, we do pray that it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil, which will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. When we began this study of James, we noted that James is often uh, one of the the greatly loved books of the Bible because of its uh, emphasis on uh, practicality. That is, James gives very clear uh, guidance about what we're to do and how we're to live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we've seen, hopefully, carrying out, that these, carrying out these practical charges isn't always easy. In fact, we might be tempted to maybe love the book of James a little less. Uh, since he's made some pretty uh, sharp charges and has laid out some serious uh, consequences for those who do not live out their faith consistently. Well, maybe tempting, but no, James truly is a delightful book. And as we, because as we've also learned, that the Lord is most gracious in supplying us daily with His grace through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, enabling us to accomplish these things which our Lord Jesus calls us to do. As we approach the end of the book of James, these convicting charges continue. And in our passage this morning, they come in a flurry as James shares some very practical counsel for those who are facing some very specific situations. Times of suffering, times of joy, and times of sickness. First, in verse 13, James asks, Is anyone among you suffering? Now, this may seem like a a strange question, considering uh, how James opened the letter with, My brethren, can it all joy when you fall into various trials? And yes, of course, there are some among them who were suffering. 
In fact, many, if not all, were suffering some trial or hardship, maybe being assaulted by temptations or oppressed by the rich or persecuted for their faith. Indeed, James already knows the answer. As even just earlier in chapter 5, as we've considered uh, last week, that he was talking about how to endure suffering and trials and how we need to be patient in those things. But he again brings up this question about suffering, really to drive home a very important point. See, beloved God, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves, we do in fact suffer. We do endure many hardships and trials, a a physical, emotional, and spiritual affliction. We face trouble in our relationships, in our our marriages, and uh, in our families, and in the community, and even in the church. We deal with economic hardships and pressures, job loss, uh, tragedies, accidents, natural disasters, persecution, and the scorn of the unbelieving world. Just because you profess the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior doesn't make you immune from these kinds of afflictions. In fact, Jesus, we know, promised that there would be days like this. That troubles would come. And much of those troubles that come into our lives are going to be for the very reason that we profess faith in the name of Christ. Jesus shares with his disciples in Matthew 10, Now brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. We know that trials and suffering and persecution will come. Because we're sinners and we're surrounded by sinners and we live in a fallen and sinful world. We can't expect that this will somehow not affect us in our everyday lives. It will and it does. And so we can expect times of suffering. Of course we know that as we expect suffering, we also know The great hope, the assurance, the promise of God's Word, that we have a great comfort knowing that our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, can actually identify with us in our suffering. Jesus knows the temptations we face. He knows knows the, the pain and the affliction that we at times endure. He knows this. Because Jesus Himself endured these same trials and hardships. Remember how Jesus left His position of honor and glory as the eternal Son of God and He humbled Himself and came in the likeness of flesh and and He endured all the um, uh, trials and temptations that we endure yet without sin. And then of course we remember how he suffered such intense physical and spiritual pain when he died on the cross for our sins. 
pain that was inflicted not just from the the cruel torture of crucifixion, but even uh, suffering the pain of the Father's goodness and, and love being turned away from Him because of our sin that Christ was bearing on the cross. Remember how Jesus cried out from quoting from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So friends, yes, Jesus knows our pain. He knows it very intimately. He knows our suffering. He can truly identify with us then in our time of affliction. So what then should we do when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering and affliction. How can we then access this comfort of Christ and and grab hold of its truth that He can truly identify with us in our pain and our misery? Well, James says here that if there is any among you His suffering, well then pray. See, prayer is the means that God has given to us to communicate with Him and to express our pain, to express our needs, to express our concerns and the burdens of our hearts. We already sung uh, several psalms this morning that have uh, that are prayers to the Lord expressing great need in the midst of trial and suffering. First Peter says it pretty directly. First Peter 5, Peter says, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Beloved of God, God cares for you. You're His beloved children. That You've been adopted by faith and through faith in Jesus Christ into His holy family. You're His precious sheep for whom the Good Shepherd, even the Lord Jesus Christ, laid down His life for to save, to forgive, to secure peace and reconciliation between you and your Creator. God truly cares for you. And He wants you to express your concerns to Him through prayer. And indeed, God is most interested in hearing from you. At all times, but especially at your hour of distress and great need. And so you should pray when you're suffering. But what should you pray for? Well, first, you should pray for wisdom. Pay for wisdom so that you can see and and perhaps understand uh, the plan and the purpose that God has in allowing this suffering to come into your lives. Back in chapter 1, after charging his readers to count it all joy when you fall into various trials, James then challenged, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who will give to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. See, we need godly wisdom to see and understand God's sovereignty over all things, even God's sovereignty over our pain and our suffering. Godly wisdom will help us to trust the Lord, to work out His plan that is ultimately we know for our good and and for His glory, even when we don't fully understand the why and the how questions that our suffering often brings. So you should pray for wisdom to help you understand these things. Secondly, you should pray for strength. Strength to help you endure and and bear up under the pressure of trials. 
strength to press on and what the Lord has has called you to do in, in the midst of and even in spite of your suffering. Right? Strength that comes to us from the all-sufficient grace of God, which we know is renewed for us each and every day so that we can endure the trials and the troubles of that day to the glory of God. And so you should pray then for strength to endure. You should also pray for patience. Remember the patience and endurance of Job that we mentioned last time, how he endured much and, and though he didn't fully understand the plan and purpose of God, Job never cursed God, but he remained steadfast in faith. And as again, as we considered before, we should pray for patience, even as we look with great expectation to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that when He comes, we know that justice will be meted out. We know that the oppressors will be called to account. And we know that our struggles with sin, with pain, suffering, grief, and anxiety will be removed from us once and for all at the coming of Christ. And so we should pray for, for patience as we endure and we await for His return. Finally, you should pray that even in the midst of your trials and your suffering, again, whatever it might be, maybe sickness or disease, temptations, struggles with sin, problems in your relationships, financial struggles, or persecution for your faith in Christ, whatever it is that's causing you pain and anxiety in your lives, you should pray that you might still be a faithful witness and that you might still shine as beacons of light and hope, even as you endure these various trials. You should pray that those who see you cling to your faith in the midst of of your suffering might themselves then be given hope as they ask and then you tell them of the hope that's in you. That they would see shining through you as you go through various fiery ordeals. And so you should pray that your suffering would be an opportunity for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to go forth and the glory of Christ to be proclaimed. Brothers and sisters, I ask you then, even now, is there anyone among you here today who's suffering in some way? Who's struggling and going through a, a difficult time in your lives? Well, then if so, then pray. Pray to the one who perfectly cares for you and is truly able to uh, sympathize with you in your suffering. Pray for wisdom. Pray for strength. Pray for patience to endure. And pray for the opportunity to be a great witness to the glory of God. You should pray. But perhaps things are going well for you. Perhaps things are going very well for you. And to you, James inquires, is anyone cheerful? Again, of course, at the beginning of this letter, James charged even those who were suffering to be filled with joy. Indeed, there's joy and gladness to be found in the midst of suffering. And that's why we need wisdom to understand that. But that joy and gladness comes from knowing the truth of God's Word because we know that the sovereign Lord God 
the creator of heaven and earth, is in control of all things. And so even when we're suffering, we trust that this sovereign, gracious God is going to work out all things for our good and His glory. And that should stir within us great joy. And the joy and gladness that this brings isn't so much an outward emotion of just being happy, happy, happy and putting on a, a face of happiness. No, but it's more the joy of contentment within our hearts. Knowing these promises and trusting in them and clinging to them even with every fiber of your being, even when you're suffering on the outside. But there are, of course, thankfully, times of cheer and joy to be had when suffering is far from us. Being filled with joy and gladness at the start of a new day or because of some exciting news, maybe a new job, a new home, a a, a wedding, or the arrival of of a baby. These are all joyful occasions. And many are filled with joy and gladness, even as we uh, head into uh, particular, this particular season. Wishing peace, joy, and goodwill to all. There are many things that bring us joy and cheer our hearts. But ultimately we know a truly cheerful heart is one that acknowledges the grace of God poured out on undeserving sinners as salvation from condemnation of sin and death has been secured and reconciliation and peace with God has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. A truly joyful, glad, cheerful heart is the one that has been renewed and transformed by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord, our salvation in Christ, is the source of our strength. And it's this joyful salvation that we remember and celebrate each Lord's Day, right? As we reflect upon what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, as how He took upon Himself a, a human nature and was born of a woman, born under the law, so that He could identify with us in our sin and misery. And how He lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling the law of God, so that we, uh, because we couldn't, because of our sin. And then, of course, how He offered Himself up as once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. His body given and His blood shed for our sins so that we would be filled with joy and gladness, even eternally so, because of this great salvation. And this good news of the Gospel should be reason enough to fill us with great cheer and joy. And again, not just today or during a particular season, but really each and every day that the Lord may bless us with. We should be filled with this joy of salvation in the Lord. So what should we do then if we're cheerful? Well, James says here, let him sing psalms. The cheerful, joyful heart should break out in praise singing psalms to the glory of God. In fact, when you think about it, it's sometimes hard and difficult when you're filled with great joy, to not sing. Right? Singing is often an expression of great joy. Even if you can't sing, and you're filled with joy, sometimes just want to sing in shouts and give praise to God. And so we should sing. And we should shout praises to God as we acknowledge that He truly is the giver of every good and perfect gift. 
that our lives and especially our worship is to be marked by such joyful singing. Sometimes we can get a little too stuffy. And sometimes those who are reformed in their doctrine, as we are, who acknowledge the truth of God's grace and salvation, we can be accused of being uh, the frozen chosen. We may contend that we're joyful on the inside, but then we, we stuff all outward expressions of joy because we're afraid we're going to appear too charismatic or emotional. But it ought not to be this way. We know and understand the glorious truth of the gospel of grace. Our lives, our worship, and our singing should be actually the most robust and joyful. Which is one of the reasons that we need to be diligent and always seeking to improve our praise. Even if we can't sing, we we look to improve our praise. For this very reason. Indeed, it is possible to sing with joyful exuberance and still worship decently and in order. And so we need to remember this. But note here what we're to sing. The songs of joy and gladness that we can lift up and praise to God are the psalms that He's given to us in His Word. Now, some translations may have here, let him sing praises, but the word being translated from the Greek is actually the Greek word for for psalms. James is charging his hearers to joyfully sing psalms. Again, we know the Psalter is the book of praise that God himself has given us, uh, and he has placed it right in the middle of our Bibles. And the Psalms are filled with the calls for us to sing for joy, to shout for joy, to sing joyful praise unto the Lord. For example, Psalm 33, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Singing joyful praise is beautiful. It's, it's appropriate, it's good and right for God's people to do in worship and again at all times. And so if there's anyone among you today who is cheerful and filled with joy, well then sing. Sing praise to God. Sing joyfully the psalms that He's given us to to praise Him with. And again, even if you're you're worried about singing off-key or or out of tune, you can still follow the example of uh, Psalm 100 to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, praising Him for life, for new life in Christ. And for the promise of our eternal, everlasting life in the presence of our Lord and Savior. And so if you're joyful, then sing psalms. So if you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, you should sing joyful psalms of praise. But, but what about when you're sick? James asks in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Now, hopefully, if you really are sick, even contagiously sick... Well, you wouldn't be here. But wouldn't uh, that you would rather hopefully be at home resting and getting well. But James' inquiry is important. Again, as it exposes another certain reality. Because just like suffering that comes into our lives and trials, Christians can also get sick. Sometimes even terminally so. Sickness like suffering comes because we live in a fallen and sinful world. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, all creation was affected. 
so that sickness, disease, and pestilence entered the world when before there was none. Sickness happens because of sin. But, I want to quickly clarify this before we misunderstand. Because unfortunately, many people do. They acknowledge that there's a connection between sickness and sin. James seems to be implying this as much in verse 15. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the confession of sin and the forgiveness of sin seem to be connected to sickness. So that when prayers for healing are offered, the one who is sick won't only be healed, but will have their sins forgiven. Now it's true that sometimes our sin has consequences, and sometimes those consequences are sickness. Jesus, when healing the paralytic who was let down through the roof, he didn't at first say to him, hey, rise, uh, take up your bed and walk, but he said, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus knew the man's deepest need was for the forgiveness of his sins. And Jesus addressed that, fully expecting that he would actually then also be healed physically. The Apostle Paul gives a warning to those preparing to participate in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Right, the implication here is that some who, who didn't partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner were afflicted with sickness. This is why we take this charge here in 1 Corinthians and the institution of the Lord's Supper very seriously. And and one of the reasons why uh, the elders expressing oversight and holding the keys to the kingdom will interview people because we don't want people to fall into this judgment, even unwittingly. And so we see from these examples that yes, It's possible that sin, even personal sin, might lead to sickness. But we need to be cautioned that this isn't always the case. Yes, sin or sickness always stems from sin in general. That is, that we live in a fallen and sinful world, and that's why there's sickness. But it doesn't follow that sickness is always due to to a person's personal sin. Jesus instructed his disciples on this point in in John 9 when he healed a man who had been born blind. And remember, the disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that uh, this man was born blind? And so they were saying, well, somebody must have sinned in order for this affliction to fall upon this man. But Jesus says, no, neither of them sinned. But this man was born blind so that the power of God might be displayed in him even as Jesus would then go on to heal this man and give him sight. And so we need to remember this. Yes, 
sickness happens because of sin in the world, but sickness doesn't always come because of our own personal sin. And some do great harm to uh, believers, weak believers in Christ, when they contend that a person who isn't healed of their sickness, they must, have, they must not have enough faith, or they must have some hidden unconfessed sin. No, sickness comes because there's sin in the world. And because of this, even very faithful believers in Christ, even those with the greatest of strength and faith, can be stricken with illness, disease, and even terminal afflictions. And so we ought not to judge a person's faith just because they happen to get sick. So what should you do then if you're sick? James says here, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. They're to call for the elders and receive the ministry of the word and prayer so that they might be healed. And we know the elders are the spiritual leaders Christ has appointed in his church to minister to the spiritual needs of the sheep, feeding them, guiding them, protecting them, and even interceding for them in prayer. And how is this ministry to the sick to be carried out? Well, the elders are called to gather together at the sickbed, maybe read some scripture, perhaps give some word of, of encouragement to build up faith, and then they're to pray for the one who's sick. But then James adds something that seems a little odd. The elders are to anoint the person with oil. What does James mean here by anointing with oil? What purpose does this serve? Well, oil, in particular uh, olive oil, was used widely at the time for medicinal purposes as a balm for wounds or as, as something uh, that would be taken internally. But even those who used olive oil in this way would contend that it wasn't a cure-all and that it wouldn't be used with every kind of sickness or ailment. So what would its purpose be here? Well, some assert that James is not speaking of literal oil, but is only speaking maybe metaphorically of the power of the Spirit that heals. And, and again, this could be a, a possibility. And certainly the Spirit of God is involved when healing takes place. But this doesn't seem to fit the context, especially as the anointing is already being done in the name of the Lord. Roman Catholics falsely find here uh, their practice of extreme unction. That is, a, uh, anointing someone before they die as their last sacrament rite and the final absolution from sin. But James is speaking merely of those who are sick. Not necessarily those who are on their deathbed or dying. So what are we to understand by this anointing? Well, as we read it plainly, it definitely seems like it's a literal anointing with oil. In fact, this isn't the first time that oil was used in conjunction with healing. When Jesus sent out the twelve two by two during his ministry in Mark 6.13, we read that they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And so there's a, a precedent. But to, again, to what end? Well, it's likely that anointing with oil was meant to really just set the person apart for a very specific, fervent session of prayer. 
a prayer that was focused primarily on seeking their healing. We know in the Old Testament that oil was used to set priests apart and to consecrate them for their duty. And it seems that the practice here is to anoint and set the person apart for a concerted time of prayer that they might be healed. But we should keep in mind that there's nothing magical or superstitious about the oil and its use here. That the oil itself has no healing power. A person can be prayed for without the use of oil just as effectively as with the oil. In fact, James is quick to make this emphasis in verse 15 when he says that it is the prayer of faith. Not the oil, but the prayer of faith that will save the sick. Now, as we'll consider, Lord willing, in a few weeks, the power is in the prayer and not the oil. But this doesn't mean that oil can't be used. In fact, the charge here is that if the elders are called upon to intercede particularly for a sick person, that oil should be used to picture the setting apart for prayer and seeking the blessing of the Spirit to answer that prayer. But we should also be cautioned here about thinking that prayer in this way will guarantee healing. Again, James uses very strong language to seemingly point in this direction. Uh, verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, it seems like it's a guarantee. But no, this isn't a magical spell or, or a, a kind of a, a cantation or something that's, that's spoken. It's a prayer of faith. And yes, when we pray, we're to pray without doubting. James has already addressed that. We should pray when we pray for somebody to be healed. We should pray that the Lord actually truly has the power to heal them. Even faith grounded in the assured promises of God, that's a prayer of faith. But again, as in all prayers, and all the times when we express our desires to the Lord, they must be submitted to the Lord's holy and perfect will. And so again, we, we boldly come to the Lord and we ask for healing. And we should express that desire and, and trust and believe that the Lord truly has the power to heal this person. But then we need to acknowledge that God may have a very different plan and purpose for the, purpose, uh, for the person and their sickness. He may have a different plan for them. He may have a plan for us. And he may have a different plan for his glory. James affirms this truth here when he states when the prayer and anointing are done in the name of the Lord. As when prayer is offered in the name of the Lord, we can be confident that the prayer will be heard and answered not according to our will, but according to God's most holy and perfect will, which is always the right and perfect plan. And that the healing we pray for is actually going to come. It may be spiritual healing if there's sin. It might actually be physical healing. And that physical healing may come now miraculously or it may come through ordinary means with the attendance of a, of a physician and various medications or procedures. Or it may be God's will that the healing will not come until the last great day when that individual will be raised in glory on the day of resurrection. 
whatever is in the plan and purpose of God, we know and trust that that will come about. But there's one other important ministry that James mentions here. Not just the intercession of the elders, but even the ministry and intercession of the whole congregation of believers. James uh, gives two one another commands in verse 16. Confess your sins to one another, your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. By confessing sins to one another, James doesn't intend, of course, that we now kind of stand up and all air, air, uh, air our dirty laundry to every person in the congregation. Certainly, we should be willing to have others hold us accountable, even as we would be there to hold them accountable, challenging one another because we love one another and are concerned for one another to live holy and righteous lives. And this is also important because our sin, we know, can actually block our prayers. We must first confess our sin before we can lay our petitions before the Lord and seek to serve and minister to one another in prayer. This then becomes the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man that accomplishes much. And again, we'll consider this uh, in more detail in a few weeks. But here, we note that the effective, fervent prayer is prayed by one who's walking uprightly before the Lord and who are seeking to faithfully serve and minister to those in the name of Christ. Though a ministry of prayer for one another, and encouraging one another, and building one another up, we do that to the glory of God. That's your brothers and sisters. Again, if you're suffering this morning, well then pray. Pray to the Lord who cares for you and can identify with you in your, in your uh, misery and your suffering. If you're cheerful, then boldly sing joyful psalms to the Lord. And if you're sick, then be comforted by the ministry of the elders and the people of God so that in you and through you that God alone will be glorified. Friends, this is very good practical counsel. Take heed to it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for these uh, charges, these counsels to help us in these different situations as we each uh, face these at different times in our lives and perhaps some even struggling with them now and, and facing them now. And so we pray that we would take heed to the counsel, gi counsel given and as we seek to trust you and to glorify you and as we seek to serve and encourage and build up and minister to one another as the body of Christ. Father, we pray that by doing these things that we would stand as a faithful witness for the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be a witness to this community of our love for one another and especially of our love for you and for your word. And so we just pray that you would bless us in these things, that you would draw us all closer to yourself as we seek to rely upon your grace to accomplish these things for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.